Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Beyond Therapy. Today we have, I think, a pretty unique conversation uh, in what honestly felt like a little bit of a come-to-Jesus moment for me personally. We're going to be talking about how mental health providers can leverage their knowledge and their expertise on social media, particularly if they're interested in expanding their work beyond one-to-one counseling and therapy. So to have this conversation, I'm joined by Devin Brown. She is the owner of Let's Write Your Future and is dedicated to helping successful mental health professionals become industry thought leaders using social media. Much of her expertise was cultivated when she worked as a travel influencer and a writer, having written for Time Out New York and National Geographic Traveler. So welcome, Devin. Thank you. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, let's start where I like to start with a lot of folks, which is what is your why? So tell me a little bit about your decision to focus on really supporting therapists using social media to expand their practice and decolonize mental health. Well, it's really important, especially when you're working in social media, to choose a niche because we are living in an ocean of people and ideas And in order to stand out, you must choose a niche. And what motivated me was my grandmother was a social worker. My best friend is a social worker and a practicing therapist. And I've always felt like they they travel into a place in people's minds that I I'm I'm too afraid to, but I'm sure happy to back you up and be the team behind you and help promote you. So that's part of the reason that I chose therapists, just because I'm so interested in mental health and the doors that it unlocks for people. Decolonization, now that has to do specifically with authenticity. So one of the things, one of the ways that I come at social media that's a bit different than people expect is. I'm not going to make have you come up with a fake persona. I'm not going to have you come up with an avatar or anything. What we do is help you become your most authentic and true self, someone that who sits at your catch, kitchen table could recognize. And I think that's a big factor in decolonizing mental health itself is clinicians being able to show up as themselves and use their experiences to inform how they treat people. Mm hmm. Yeah, that feels like that is just really where a lot of the conversation is right now, I feel like in mental health and how we show up as providers. I'm just thinking about the, you know, this trend toward acknowledging sort of the pervasiveness of trauma um, toward these more sort of like disclosure based kind of where the relationship between the counselor and the client is really where the healing takes place. So it seems so timely Uh, to be helping clinicians focus on authenticity. So this is probably going to sound a little bit like a gotcha kind of question, but I don't mean it that way. (laughs) So we'll see how it goes. So I recently did an interview with um, a licensed clinical social worker. Her name's Shaniqua Ford. She's based in Illinois. And she made the great point that there are a lot of definitions for decolonizing. 
Um, but the working definition that she uses is that to understand what decolonized would be, we have to consider what structures, systems, and practices would look like if colonialism had never happened. And it seems to me that social media probably would not exist if colonialism had never happened. I'm, what's your read on that? And like how, how can we decolonize mental health while also participating in what is currently at least a very capitalistic sort of space like social media? Well, I think the denial of reality is never a good idea. We are here. <laughs> we are here. We are part of a, a colonized society. And it is our job to take where we are today and move forward. So even if that is our goal to decolonize mental health, it's not as if it's something that is can be completely clean swept, according to her definition. We can't pretend that it didn't happen. And we can't pretend that we as individuals and who are who our personalities are, everything from code switching to how we wear our hair isn't affected by it. And I think actually by embracing the reality of what our history, we can actually help people move forward and choose who they want to be going forward. So I think it's more about just, hey, this happened, embracing it and using it to move forward rather than rather than trying to pretend that it never did and trying to figure out what to do with that. I'm wondering, do you have an example of uh, like what it might mean to, and this could just even just be an example of like a, a type of post even really um, that would be sort of emblematic of this is what it's like to embrace how things are while also embodying uh, decolonization within mental health. Yes. Oh, gosh. I wish I, rem I remember the specific um, topic that one of my clients, she has a, a viral video and it talks about, and maybe you can help me. So she has, a, it's a term she used, I think it's rejection sensitivity. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she's talking about rejection sensitivity. But in talking about this particular term that she learned in school, she is walking down the street, wearing a do-rag, saying it in very accessible street language, and as well as she described the topic using her own personal story. So that's in so many ways in contrast to how you're expected to show up as a clinician. But on social media, she is allowed to be the person that she is very authentically, which is a person who did a lot of schooling on mental health, but also grew up in a certain place at a certain time in a certain body. And to be able to combine those two truths together is magical. Mm. Gosh, yeah, that does feel like such a powerful example. And I definitely, I connect with how one of the primary aspects and kind of ongoing harmful aspects of, of colonized mental health is this sort of uh, notion of what it means to be professional and how inaccessible and unfair, I mean, you know, just kind of ridiculous the standards are. So I'm, I'm wondering, can we tell me a little bit about uh, what professionalism looks like on social media? I think professionalism has more to do with understanding what your boundaries are and what you're willing to share about yourself, what you 
according to your the ethical standards provided to you within your within your profession and not going outside of those boundaries. But I believe the rest is up to you. So the things that are considered unprofessional within the therapy space, I think they can stay in the therapy space. I think that therapists are allowed to be full humans. It's a, and it's very, I think it's pretty radical because it's very much against what you're taught. But so much of the time, people want to understand your perspective. What is your story? Where are you coming from? How can you specifically help me? So I think professionalism starts with boundaries, but the rest is truly up to you. At least from my understanding of, of like the counseling ethical guidelines, the main concern around uh, oversharing, you know, or disclosing too much within the counseling space with a client is we don't want for the client to feel like now they need to take care of us or that they are no longer really the center of the work. Um, and so social media is like a very different space because it is removed from that direct interaction. And so I wonder if the expectations are different, you know, that if I see a therapist talking about their, um, you know, history of trauma, for example, hopefully not with details because that can get dicey. Um, but then maybe I feel more connected to that therapist, but then I, I seek mental health services from someone who's not that therapist, you know, so maybe there's an accessibility piece. Absolutely. I think having someone who is a professional be able to put the feelings and things that happen to you in words, and especially those who are brave enough to identify with them is so incredibly empowering for people. And social media is often a one-way view where the counseling space is a two, it's a two-sided thing. You're having a conversation back and forth in real time, where social media is something that somebody consumes oftentimes alone. And so I think while I think that counselors can trust themselves to create that space when they are in the room being a counselor to be a counselor and to hold those boundaries and they can touch, they can, they can trust themselves in that way. I just had a conversation with a counselor this week, actually, who uh, she was identifying what she felt was like counter-transference because, you know, her client was sharing a situation and she could identify very heavily with it. And so her urge was, well, if I can identify with it, then it could it could get in the way of my work with this client. And so my question, which was a little bit sassy to the counselor, was, um, are you the only person aside from this client who's had that experience? And then does what you want to share with this client also align with what you know to be true based on your mental health training? Mm. And she was like, yeah, so I, yeah, this is a pattern. And I understand it both from my lived experience and from the mental health perspective. It's like, oh, okay. So then it's not a liability, huh? But like our training is so hardcore around, and so much of it is in, implicit, not even explicit, right? It's like, don't share your stuff. Which makes it a lot easier. It makes it a lot easier. You don't have to think about everything. But does it make you more effective? It does make you safer in terms of the system, but does it make you a better clinician? Mm. 
don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that it makes you safer in regard to the system, because I think particularly the the mental health system, obviously, there are a lot of facets to it. But I mean, part of what makes it work or continue to function is that there are patients and providers and there's not supposed to be this overlap where the provider is also a patient in some regard. So there has to be for the system to maintain itself as it is, there has to be this power differential. And that power differential is largely defined by, you know, white supremacy notions of what wellness is. Very much so. And it's what I find a lot with my clients that I think is very interesting is how much um, recertification you have to have, how much in order to serve a particular population with on a particular thing, like maybe eating disorders or sexual health, people feel compelled to get recertified in specific things. And I think it's very much built into the system that you must return to the system in order to be re-educated by the system in order for you to continue to do your work. And I just wonder, and I'm not on the inside like you guys are, but is that true? Ooh, that's that's a, a big question. And I, that connects for me because because uh, I supervise a lot of folks who are getting their licensure. And so often, you know, folks will say, I feel competent to uh, work with folks who have depression or folks who have anxiety. But when it comes to eating disorders, when it comes to substance use, um, and then when it comes to severe and persistent mental illness, they'll be like, "Mm, but I don't have the experience and the training. And I'm so torn because I think on the one hand, it, it is valuable to acknowledge that like certain diagnoses do have certain very specific challenges and that there has been some good, some good work around specific treatment modalities for those. But yeah, I think it really does kind of uh, reinforce this sense of never really being competent when there's always a new training, there's always a new hot take on what treatment is best for this or that. I think it is just very difficult to find the balance between honoring the need for growth, because that is a real thing, without that then reinforcing this narrative of not enoughness. Oh, yeah. And it's not that you're not necessarily taking what you've learned in your grassroots, in the room, in the conversation, education, and being able to use that going forward officially. And that's what I, that's what I find challenging. It doesn't necessarily respect the on-the-ground learning that you're doing every single day when you're talking to people. Whew, that's going to really blow some people's minds. I think. Not a therapist, just saying. <laughs> you know, to think about, oh, actually, the work I do every day is also part of my continuing education. You know, wow. So let's maybe kind of dig into some of the nitty gritty of social media. Um, so how does a provider really decide if they need to be on social media at all? Well, I think for most people, it's really interesting. A lot of people come to me because they want to use social media to book out their practices. And that's not actually the group of people that I focus on. Because in my mind, I think that there are just so many other 
methods for doing that, whether it's directories or just your on the ground, local community, and really touching the people that you already know. I think that's an invaluable resource, especially when you're licensed in, licensed in a specific place. It just makes more sense to me to go out to the community to find more clients. But the people I love to focus on are those who are booked out, the ones who have the wait list, the ones who are, who've been in the game for a while and are thinking, how do I level up beyond one-on-one? I know I have more. I have seen the results that the people who come to me get, and I want to be able to expand my impact and expand my income without burning out. So those are the people that I like to work with the most. That does. And I mean, it's bringing to mind also from like a supervision standpoint that it sounds like your kind of primary clientele are folks who are like, if we're thinking about an integrated developmental model of supervision, folks who are at this like intermediate level. So they're not new counselors. Um, They're maybe established either in their own practice or in a practice somewhere Um, they maybe have had like a touch of burnout, you know, so they've been in it long enough that they know what it's like to feel overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm familiar on this sort of clinical supervisory side with, I think who you're talking to and who you're talking about, which is an interesting perspective. So, okay. I also have had supervision conversations that I'm not entirely sure if I'm kind of directing folks in the right (laughs) way or pointing them in the right direction, who have said that exact thing, I want to move beyond this one-on-one way of engaging. So do the folks you work with, do they typically already have an idea of what that looks like? Or is that something that you help them figure out? Like what? That is something that we help them figure out. So I think that's when our ideal sweet spot is somebody who says, I know I have more to give I'm not exactly sure how to do that. And that's where we take them from. And that's the journey that we take. And part of it is just learning how to show up authentically with the things that have made you successful in the therapy room and bringing them to the online space and seeing how people respond to that. I think one of the biggest, the most detrimental things that I see people do over and over and over again is they think, I want to move beyond one-on-one. I'm going to create a course. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to to do a group. And then all those things I've done. And like, it was like pulling teeth every single last one. Yeah. And and it's a lot of work and it hurts so bad. And then usually what happens is they don't sell. Nobody shows up and nobody shows up. And then the person thinks that what they do is not valuable or that it's it discourages them from moving. Maybe I'm not supposed to move beyond one-on-one and neither of those things are necessarily true. It's that, especially these days, you have to have start the conversation with your audience before you build the product. See, and that just feels like, I mean, I felt my nervous system just go like... <laughs> why would I try to cultivate an audience and I have nothing, nothing, you know, tangible to offer them? Like, so do you have a sense of like where, I mean, it sounds like a capitalism thing, but where does that narrative come from for people? Well, what I see that it comes from is 
your training, especially if you are a woman or especially if you're part of some other type of marginalized group, showing up unprepared was not an option. You have to be ready to run. But unfortunately, in order to grow, you often have to release the things that got you as far as they did. Mm. And that preparedness, and that just means in creating the course or whatever, is something you have to let go. I'm having a lot of feelings, Devin. (laughs) This is is working on me. (laughs) Something that I connect with. The course, the book, (laughs) which I mean, the book, like for me personally, I mean, now it's a little bit like reading the diary from when you're 14 years old. You know, anytime I go back and read, I'm like, ooh, that's a little cringy. Um, But it felt purposeful and necessary. And I think maybe just for my own benefit. But um, where do we get these ideas of like, so preparedness is a piece of it, but it was just like, I didn't even have to think about, oh, well, I should do a book or a course. Like, where is that messaging coming from in terms of what, why is that perceived to be the next step? Well, because I believe in the past it was. I mean, before there was the internet, what else could you do? What else was the next step? How else could you how else could you reach beyond the people that are in your immediate area? It was a book. But now, and of course, that was an uphill battle in itself because then you had to ask someone else for permission to distribute that book. Someone else had to endorse that book. And that's no longer the case. So I think everybody's just playing by an old playbook of what what you think is supposed to come next and how to do the thing. And I think it's a missed opportunity because nowadays you have direct access to the people that you want to speak to. Instant access. And to ignore that is to take a tool that's so useful to you and just like not use it. Tell us a little bit about what it looks like to sort of cultivate a brand, an authentic brand uh, before you have a product. So what does that entail? Number one, first and foremost, it's just about the simple act. And you know, some of the simplest things are the hardest things to do, showing up. And these days showing up, especially when it comes to social media, is about video. It's about putting yourself behind a camera and speaking your truth to the best of your ability and repeating it over and over and over again till you become more comfortable, more authentic, and closer to who you are in real life. Because a lot of you are already very successful. People trust you. You've helped people take themselves from places, from hard places to better places. And so it's about really gaining the trust in yourself to show up as you are. And being acknowledged for that, seeing people that are actually starting to respond to that. And that's where the confidence starts to come in like, oh, I can just be myself and people are going to like it. Oh, it's amazing. It's a really beautiful transformation to watch, actually. What you and your your team, it sounds like, would offer then is some structure or guidelines or help in doing. Because, I mean, plenty of people post videos of themselves and are not getting liked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what do you think about how how you would then assist someone in being more visible once they've made that decision to show up? 
Well, I think the first thing that we do is we help you understand what it is that makes you special and unique. And a lot of that begins with your own story. And so much of our story helps us understand why we are in the place we are today, why you chose the profession you chose, why you chose the specific type of person that you want to help. So we start there. We also remove so much of the uh, misinformation that just sure people show up with videos, but they're very, they're typically very inconsistent. They're typically filled with this kind of uh, balance between how do I be professional and how do I be myself and all of these sort of like mixed messagey sort of uncomfortableness, which is fine at the beginning, but it's about having a progression. And I think one of the things that we provide that is different is we really work on the emotional blocks that prevent people from showing up the next day. We, so when you don't get the likes, then what do you do? Because usually what happens is people are like, oh, I'm going to do this social media thing. I'm in it. Yes. And they get maybe three days, max three weeks into it. They're not seeing the results that they want to get. And all of a sudden, the rest of the to-do list feels heavier and more important. They drop off. And then the cycle starts back up again in a couple of months and they do the same thing. And then they feel that they're not successful when really it's just they don't have a strategy. So I, I think that that's a great segue into what I feel like is my ongoing dilemma. So what you're describing is that even when therapists engage in social media, folks who maybe have tools to at least offer others, we don't always do it for ourselves, but to sort of help mitigate that sort of social comparison aspect, some of the things that make, I mean, we know social media can be so detrimental to mental health. So when you say that you sort of offer support to folks to help them navigate that, what does that look like to sort of help someone shore up their confidence or their ego strength enough uh, to weather uh, the maybe the lack of commenting, maybe then the negative commenting? What does that look like? Well, we have I have about a, so many different tricks and tools that I built into because I have a program. It's very much um, it's a prescribed program. So I'm taking people through a path that we have been through many times. But let me see if I can come up with some basic things. Um, number one, we come up with who specifically are you speaking to? Because one of the big problems that I see is that people are often trying to speak to and as many people as possible. And when you do that, no one is truly going to identify with you, which means no one is going to say, thank you for telling that story that sounded like me because you're not doing that. You're not sounding like them. You're sounding like you're trying to speak to everybody. So that's step number one. The next thing that we do is we help you hire someone. We help you hire someone who is going to literally be in your corner long after we're gone. And that helps you, um, for example, take content that we later teach you how to do and repurpose it. So when on those days when you truly can't show up, they help it look like you're still showing up. When Christmas season comes, the holidays and every and your to-do list is truly too long, you're still showing up for your audience on social media. 
The other thing that we do is, for example, um, a lot of people are always like, I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to talk about. And we help you come up with very specific topics, very specific titles that uh, connect to the story that you're trying to tell about yourself, to the specific audience member that you're going for. And I think a lot of my clients come back and say, that's just when they have a list, because you guys are doers, you are accomplishers, you do things. So when you have a list of what to do, you can do that well. So that's just a couple of tricks. I mean, we have so many. I, I, I look for a way to keep that emotional energy moving forward in every corner that I possibly can, because I know that's the thing that's holding most people back, not the how. So this um, niche idea, that's something that I personally have always struggled with, largely because I feel like if I got super specific and was only trying to talk to one type of person or one presenting issue, I would get bored to death. So my practice is super eclectic. So I work with a lot of different types of people. My like my supervision, like part of I think what uh, if there's a niche is that I don't have one, you know, it's so like, yeah, we can talk about there are things I know I shouldn't be talking to people about. <laughs> so there are areas that I don't go. But for folks who do sort of like identify in that more eclectic way, um, is there hope for them on social media or should they just be like, this is not for me? <laughs> Well, I think in some ways you have to accept that at first boredom is part of the process because people need to see your messaging about 11 times to understand what it is you're talking about and who you're talking to. And if you can imagine, and I think this is super important. I didn't even know that most of you guys didn't know this, but your followers do not see every piece of content that you create. So if you have 500 followers, it does not mean that 500 people will see a piece of your content. Typically, the algorithm will show between, depending on what type of account you have, two and maybe about two, two to eight percent of that audience, your content. So when you get those two likes, it's not just because 500 people saw your thing and didn't like it and only 498 of them didn't like it. That's because most of them didn't see it. So if you can imagine that they need to see it 11 times, you've got to be saying the same thing, dancing around the same thing a lot in order to get your message across. So that feels like we need to talk about the algorithm, the <laughs> algorithm, which I feel like is the capital A algorithm, which is maybe not accurate. I don't even know. I'm not even sure what an algorithm is. I just know that it's not working for me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's working for you depending on where you are and what you're trying to do. But it's the algorithm is a mystery. Honestly, there is a, the, these companies do not publish. This is what our algorithm does and how it does it. No, that's their secret sauce. They're never going to tell you. But here's the thing. One of the great benefits of having a niche is one thing you can accept and know about the algorithm and trust is the algorithm's number one job is to keep people on the specific app that it works for. That's its whole goal in the whole world. So if you have a specific niche and you're creating a specific type of content that is 
energizing and keeping a specific group engaged, then the algorithm is on your side. It will continue to show that stuff to those people because that you're helping the algorithm do its job. So engagement is key. And so if we kind of break that down and sort of operationalize it, um, it's it sounds like really sort of time spent with a particular post um, is is the primary sort of piece to consider. Are there other things to consider like number of likes, number of views, number of comments, shares? What else goes into that? Sure. I'm, I can't, like I said, this is the secret recipe. So I can't, I don't know, but I can tell you things like, for example, video views. If someone views your video from beginning to end, you are more, your video is more likely to be pushed out to a wider and greater audience. If your video is viewed more than once by the same person, that video is more likely to be pushed to a wider and greater audience. If there, if within the first 30 minutes, there are a lot of comments on your particular post, if there's a conversation going, it is more likely to be pushed to a wider and greater audience because that's what the algorithm recognizes like, oh, this is quality content. And by quality for them, it means people staying on and engaging with it longer. Is there a particular place where therapists, providers, people who are moving beyond this one-to-one, where do they fare the best? Which platforms? So the plate, my favorite space right now is TikTok. I knew you were going to say that. I don't even have, I don't even take the talk. It's okay. You don't have to take the talk. Most of my clients before they start with me do not take the talk. We download the app together. (laughs) That makes me feel better. (laughs) That's part of the process is let's download this app here. So the reason why is, is currently just the most productive of the um, of the platforms in that the time and effort that you put in results in greater views, greater interactions, greater everything because it's growing. Whereas Instagram or Facebook are more established and they're more focused on earning money. I've got to say that one of the key things that we teach our clients is repurposing. So perhaps we'll start you out on TikTok because you're going to get more interactions, and you'll know what things that you talk about are most interesting to people. But it shouldn't just stay there. That content can go on Instagram. That content can go on, (gasps) gasp, LinkedIn. Total gasp. (laughs) (laughs) I have about 300 invitations in my LinkedIn inbox. Not because I get, I'm real popular, but because I haven't logged in in probably a year and a half. Well, that's another highly productive place, actually, because there are very few content creators on LinkedIn. There are a lot of people on it, but very few content creators. So if you learn how to use it well, it's a great way to spread your influence. Okay, so I'm a therapist and I'm thinking about getting on TikTok, but I don't have any fun dances. Sweet Jesus. So how could I possibly be a TikTok success? Please don't. Please don't no. do dance if you're not a dancer. Well, you know, that's one. And I'm like, I can kick it. No, I shouldn't <laughs> say that. If you're a dancer, if you're a dancing therapist, if that's part of who you are, then absolutely, because that is your authentic self. But one of the things I teach my clients to do is don't compete with people at things that you're not as good at. 
you guys, <laughs> like if you're trying to win, don't pick the contest you're not good at. So many of you have things that the rest, almost everybody else doesn't. There are kids out here giving mental health advice that have ne have never <laughs> been to any type of formal training whatsoever. But you have true knowledge. They can't compete with you on that. For those of you with your titles and your PhDs and your MAs and your all all of those letters that you guys carry, you can carry those onto TikTok and that can be a distinguishing factor for you. That feels really important to name. And that actually I was in um looking at some article, not an article, it was just a like an opinion piece that someone at the American Counseling Association put out. And they were kind of highlighting the different ethical pieces to consider when you're going to have some sort of social media presence. Um, and one of the things that they said is that uh, it's really important to be very clear about your credentials, very clear about your training, very clear about your areas of specialty. Um, and that feels like something that is, yes, I hear exactly what you're saying would both differentiate you from like Susan over here, who's like sitting in her car, eating some Sonic and talking about how her difficulty eating ketchup is a trauma response, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> everything's a trauma response. You know? <laughs> so, That's a piece um, of content right there, by the way. Everything's a trauma response. Tell me what's not. Why? You're a professional. Oh my gosh. Tell me more. <laughs> and I'm thinking about working with therapists who are from marginalized groups like especially women, especially people of color, where it, we are discouraged from capitalizing on our training and our credentials. You know, it's like, do you do you really need them to call you Dr. Creaseman Mallory? Can't you just be more chill and say, I'm just Candace? So how is that something that shows up in your clientele? Is this sort of hesitancy around owning what we know and can do. I've seen it a number of times, especially in my most accomplished and maybe my a bit slightly older clients, that they don't want it to come off as big headed or braggadocious. And I always ask them the question, who does that serve? Mm. Ooh. And who does it serve? Like who who benefits from the provider who wants to just kind of stay chill and be the person who you, you know, are chatting with at the bus stop versus the professional. Well, I can tell you who it doesn't serve. Social media is access to individuals. They have it in their pocket. They're looking at it at the bus stop. They're looking at it in their bathrooms. And if somebody who looks like you, who grew up like you, sees you in on social media with your impressive title and you're impressive worked with NASA or whatever, what have you, that's a window into an opportunity for them that would not exist if you played small and you kept it quiet and you just stuck to the, you just stuck to the facts. Especially for folks where, you know, and I'll just speak for myself where it's like, it's really important for me just as like a human to really sort of focus on equity access. I could act in the service of my fear and stay small and, you know, and, and name that it's a legitimate fear, right? Because yeah, 
people will come at you if you are doing things that the system deems, you know, that you are not worthy to do. So, yes, I have this valid fear. I could act in the service of that fear or I could act in the service of my values. What when folks do get those negative reactions, um, I personally considered it like a, a leveling up experience when I had a white man tell me how I shouldn't be talking about white supremacy in one of my meditation courses. I was like, oh, OK. Hey, <laughs> <I have> <laughs> yeah, but like there, you know, me two years ago would have it would have been much more painful for me um, a little while ago. How do you help people when that starts to happen? So number one, I think it's a really interesting fear to have because there is a certain duality to it. There's this idea that like, hey, not enough people are looking at my content. I only got two likes. Am I not good enough? And sitting right next to that is, oh my gosh, I've got so many people looking at my stuff and now they're telling me something and it's like, well, you can't have one and not the other. You got to... you. Do you want to be seen and heard or don't you? So that's the first step. But, and what I want to, the reason I bring it up is because it's almost a luxury to have this problem to your point of what you just said. It is a luxury to have this problem because getting that level of visibility means that you have dedicated yourself to speaking to as many people as you can and you have succeeded. So I would always, my first thing is like, don't worry about it. That's the least of your problems at the beginning for sure. But then after that, it's about having a system. And we do. We have a system. When things start to go awry, number one, we have that social media manager that we helped you with. And we have them go in and delete the comments before you see them. The other thing we have them do is provide a list of all of the positive feedback. Because I have yet to see a time when the positive feedback was outweighed by negative. In fact, it's usually like 98 to 2%. And typically that 2% is somebody who doesn't have a, doesn't have a profile picture. So one of the things we say is come back to us, talk to us, do not go through this alone. And we will, we will walk this with you. The other thing when people are ready, and I think it takes a little while to get to this place is operating in compassion and understanding that a person who decided to spend their day and their time to come find you to say something negative when you're probably not even speaking to them directly is in a dark and sad place. Yes. And I think especially if we're thinking about the folks who you're working with from this like sort of supervision clinical development standpoint, right? So they're folks who are maybe feeling more confident in their clinical abilities. And we'll maybe take like a pretend test case here, right? So maybe this is someone who they didn't have to wait very long to get pretty visible. You know, maybe they'd kind of hit the sweet spot and they've got, you know, more followers than they would have expected. So they're in that space of feeling more competent, but also still being very vulnerable, you know, still not necessarily having to find what their their product or their next step is going to be now that they've got this audience um, is if you want to get to the compassion place, then you have to honor your fear. And honoring your fear, nurturing your fear is very different than feeding your fear and making choices from your fear. Yeah, so I totally agree that I think that is really the, the goalpost that serves everyone 
is can I get to a place where even the negative feedback is something that I can not necessarily welcome, but make room for without judgment toward other or self. And honestly, you don't have to hold yourself to such a high standard at the beginning. But I'm just in my last cohort of clients, um, within the third week of working with us, one client went viral twice. I think she's, I don't know how many followers she has at this point, but it was a big deal to her. And she did have a bit of trolling, but I, what I have seen time and time again, because our clients typically do end up going viral at some point. That is part of what we're trying to do here is get you more visible. Not one of them regrets putting themselves out there. Not one of them wishes it never happened because of this, because the positive response is overwhelming and the positive response helps them understand the exact direction that they need to take going forward. How are they going to grow beyond one-on-one? Because they realize what is resonating with people in the negative sense and in the positive sense, they've figured out the nerve. And so it's just... It's just part of the game and it's just well worth it. You guys have done hard things before. Maybe I'll just highlight this because I think I can add it back into when we were talking about ethical concerns. So we mentioned, you know, not being afraid to share your expertise, your licensure, and also, you know, this ACA article mentioning that that's actually really part of how you're going to do this ethically is to make sure people know where you're coming from, um, because that relates directly to informed consent from an ethical standpoint. Um, so some other recommendations that I liked in this article were um, exploring options like turning off commenting and private messaging, because the private messaging piece that gets into confidentiality, right? So if you're not using a secure messaging space to engage with someone who, and obviously it's a little dicey because they're not your client just by virtue of reaching out to you. Uh, But how can we sort of protect people's confidentiality if we are, you know, putting content out there that invites people to share very personally, potentially. The other thing, I'm curious to get your read on this. uh, There's, at least in the ACA code, Uh, This real kind of discouraging language around uh, certainly seeking testimonials from clients, but it it really kind of bleeds into even sharing testimonials, even when you don't ask for them. What is your sense of, I mean, how critical is that sort of social proof to leveraging your work on social media? From what I've seen... Okay, so when it comes to sharing testimonials, from what I've seen of my clients, typically if they decide to move beyond therapy work, the testimonials they use are more from a coaching standpoint. So I don't actually see people use testimonials very often, but one of the most powerful testimonials that you can have that I do believe you can have access to is your own story and how you got yourself from one place to another, which is not necessarily allowed in the therapy room, but it is allowed in the social media space. Yeah, I feel that just being kind of an ongoing dance for folks and trying to figure out, especially if they do still have an ongoing therapy practice, how much can I show up in one without that bleeding into the other? Um, but ultimately, I feel like the the rules that we have internalized are just not really workable period. So I think that needs to be the starting point is just 
is what you think you know about disclosure actually relevant, meaningful, clinically sound? Let's circle back to um, working with particular populations of clients, your clients. What are some of the unique challenges that you have found, particularly like BIPOC therapists face, especially knowing how underrepresented they are in the counseling field to begin with? What what challenges do they face specifically? I would say the biggest ones are actually internal. And that primary one, going back to something we mentioned earlier, is perfectionism. The need to show up unblemished, the need to show up polished in a way that almost makes you disappear. It's so, it's always such a beautiful surprise from to my clients when one of their pieces of content goes viral. And it's usually the one where they're like exhausted because we actually do build into our program a little bit of exhaustion because we know that it's very difficult to hold up a mask when you're doing this thing every single day. There's a certain point you're just like, just let me get it done. And that's usually the point where people identify with you the most because you can't hold up the mask anymore and you become your more authentic self. So I think that's one thing, perfectionism. In general, um, social media platforms are designed and created primarily by younger white men. And there's just inherent bias in the, in the way these things are designed. It's just, but that is not outside anybody's reality in any arena that they, and they work in. So I don't think it should be the thing that stops you because it's not new to you. It's not going to prevent you from reaching the people that you want to reach, especially if those people are ones that look like you and need to see you. So that's another, it's another big push towards niche because that helps you talk to the audience that you really need to talk to. And the algorithm is on your side for that. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it just, it feels just important to name. The challenges are different and bigger in the field of mental health for providers of color. And that goes, you know, that, functions on every level. It functions on the availability of graduate programs. I I think one of my guests shared, uh, and actually two people shared that there's only one HBCU that has a counseling, a doctoral counseling program. You know, so, I mean, just access at every level is harder. Are there any particular strategies that you really recommend for showcasing your expertise and building this personal brand that we haven't touched on? I think one piece that people are missing that's super important. So we've already talked about the fact that you should choose a niche that's and not choose. We actually work with our clients to discover their niche by putting themselves out there and understanding what people are responding to from them. And quite frankly, it almost always ends up at one of their personal intersections in their own life. That's usually your niche. So I like to say discover rather than choose. But um, the thing that most people forget or even disparage is the idea of repeating yourself. And we've talked about it before already, but repeat what works. If you have a particular topic that worked well 
do it again. Come at it from a different angle. A worst case, come at it from the same angle. You're better to do that than to make up a million other things. So I think a lot of people think they need to continually create and divinate brand new things when really it's about being consistent and helping people know that when they show up to you, they're going to get a certain thing. They're going to talk about a certain thing and it's going to be informed by somebody who really knows what they're talking about. I'm I'm just really applying all of this to myself right now. So I there there is no amount of video that I ever want to do. Period. So it's just I'm not interested. I hate doing video. Um so especially if we're thinking and I mean I, if I have to I will. <laughs> but for someone who is coming from that perspective, both there's really not a format on social media that I really enjoy to any degree. And I'm also not real clear on what my end target for all this is. Like, how do you help people in that space where there's like kind of some, you know, unwillingness and some foot dragging and they're still cultivating their, what their authentic brand would be and even where they would want that to take them. How do we, how do, is your question like, how do we get to do, how do we get people to do video when they're kind of like, I don't want to, and what for anyway? And what for, yeah. So like, what would you say to me? (laughs) (laughs) I would say that you have to understand that your face and the way that you speak and how you show up is valuable to somebody, Mm. incredibly valuable to somebody that they they need to see you and that in seeing you, you're not, it's not about you. You're actually validating who they are. Ooh. It's not about you. It's not about you Mm. at all. In fact, it's one of the things I say about my own content. I say, when you look at my page, almost every single piece of content is my face and it is not about me at all. It is about people seeing a representation of themselves thriving and doing a thing that they want to do. It's not mm-hmm. about you at all. Yeah. And again, I'll just, I'll speak to kind of my own lived experience. Cause I, I think what you're naming is that part of being authentic is not curating yourself. I love what you said. Like, don't polish yourself to the point that you disappear. You know I mean? That's just beautiful. Uh, but there, I think to be vulnerable, it's going to put us in touch very directly with the things that we don't think are valuable about ourselves that we feel like we would need to change for anyone to be interested. So, I mean, this feels like, you know, maybe not to go too deep with it because, you know, social media is kind of known for not being super deep, I think, (laughs) but it sounds like it really does take some inner work to think about putting yourself out there in this particular way. It's definitely one of another reason that I didn't tell you before. It's definitely one of the reasons that I started my business with therapists because I wanted people that had tools to do this work because I'm not going about it in a superficial way. That's not um, valuable to me as a person in terms of my life work. I just want to help people accept that they are valuable in their own bodies, with their own knowledge, and they're valuable to people who are just like them, who need to see you. They need it. So. Wow. I mean, I'm so glad that you shared that because I think it, for me, it's so easy to lose the plot around social media, you know, is 
because the messaging, as, I mean, for therapists, and we talked about this in another episode too, was, you know, there's now there's all this messaging about how to make your practice a seven figure practice. And, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's so easy to fall into those sorts of productivity and materially driven uh, goals. And so just to name that, you really can engage with this as a tool to service. First and foremost, you can do that from day one on your journey to the seven-figure practice, on your journey to the whatever 10,000, 100,000 followers you want, on your journey to promoting your book. You can be using this in terms of service from day one. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it's also maybe really important to stay grounded in that intention because there are so many like unwholesome things that could grab at you and turn, you know, oh, that's shiny. Oh, I did get a hundred thousand. Maybe I could just do this one ad. And even though I don't really support the, you know, the framework of this company or whatever, it sounds like you just really have to be vigilant of your intention. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of being in part of doing this work in community. Cause I think when you do it in isolation, when you don't have a, at least a partner or a group, it's very, you, we can all be very susceptible to the shiny things, the scary things, the easy button. And it does take you away from your mission. And I know that's why people th- are afraid to be on here sometimes because they don't want to get caught in the vortex. But we need you. We need the good guys out here too. Mm-hmm. We need you guys. Random question. What is your favorite book that you've read lately? Well, last night I finished The Moment of Lift by Melinda Gates. That I mean, I'm just reading. I'm in a real I'm I'm in a reading space right now, so and then before that was um by oh my gosh, I can't believe I forgot her name already. So don't know. I could probably find it, but um favorite book? How can you I read like three to four books a month. I'm like I'm a book I'm a book girl. So that's a hard one. Mm. Same. I'm always in search of books that tell the stories of young girls and women doing something powerful because I need that inspiration all the time. I need it every day. And what I'm looking for, so anybody who's listening mm-hmm. to this podcast and they have the next thing I'm looking for right now is books, inspiring and wonderful books about motherhood. <laughs> yes. Ooh. Yeah. There, have you read All, all Joy and No Fun? No. Okay. Um, okay, I'm writing it down. It's it's pretty good. It's also pretty white middle class centered, like most baby books. But it um it it just really honors how hard it is, and it speaks to the d- difficulties that can arise at different developmental stages of the kids, and like how it impacts marriages and partnerships and work life and blah blah blah. Um, so it's, uh, I found it very validating for my ambivalence about motherhood after having children, which is a bad time to be ambivalent about motherhood is after you've had the children. (laughs) All right. Well, as we're wrapping up here, um, how can people connect with you and learn more about what you're doing to help therapists in the social media world? So my company is called Let's Write Your Future, write with a W, like writing a book, Let's Write Your Future. And you can look that up on Instagram. You can, I have a website by the same name, TikTok. We're all over the place. LinkedIn, 
we do do our business here, but sure that maybe the easiest is let's write your future, the website, and that will direct you to all the other avenues. And I welcome people to reach out to me and ask questions and start a conversation because, um, that's how, that's, what's going to get you on the road to showing your face and inspiring the people that need to see you most. Mm -hmm. Well, I will be sure to link out to your website in all of both our course and in um, the podcast show notes. So I'm just so grateful for your time, Devin. This is probably one of the most unique conversations I've had on the podcast. And so, uh, yeah, just personally super helpful. So thank you. And it was fun. Thank you. Yeah. Good times. Yeah, I love this stuff. That does it for our show today, folks. As always, if you're interested in getting some continuing education credit for listening today, then head on over to beyondtherapy.thinkific.com, where you can learn about both our individual courses and our upcoming membership option launching April 1st. We'd love to keep the conversation going, so follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Beyond Therapy Podcast. This is Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry signing off. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening.